If you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be um, going through today the final piece of Peter's message of hope to these persecuted believers. Believers, man, I can't talk today. Living hope in a hopeless world. I can't talk any day is what you're thinking. But anyway, um, Peter was writing this letter to a group of persecuted believers who were scattered across northern Turkey. They had come to Christ just like you and me. They were living in a pagan world, had heard the gospel, believed it, and invited Christ into their lives. And as they started living for Jesus, they realized the pagan world they were living in was not quite ready for the claims of Christ. As a matter of fact, they saw that as a threat. And so many people began to persecute these believers. This letter was written to help them to stay strong with a living hope in the midst of that persecution. You and I aren't living in a pre-Christian world, we're living in a post-Christian world, where the majority of the world is not Christian, and many still view the claims of Christ as a threat to their lifestyle and their beliefs. In many places around the world, even here, there's a price that people pay to live for Jesus. And it isn't just persecution. We go through trials of all kinds, financial setbacks, relational strife, loss of loved ones, And God uses all of these things, Peter said, to help us to grow. God has a purpose in it. It's building in us a living hope in a hopeless world. Here's how Peter closes out his letter to to this dear group of people. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, these words were such a great encouragement to these persecuted believers in the first century. And you have used these words throughout church history to encourage each generation of Christians to stand strong for you, and we are no different. Today, as we are concluding our study together in this letter of 1 Peter, I pray that you will help us to really embrace this living hope, living hope in a hopeless world. And today, that you'll help us to see the hope of our believing family. And we'll thank you in your precious name. Amen. Many of you may not know that I have a brother who lives in India. I have a sister who lives there too. My brother's name is Frank. My sister's name is Gladys. Frank is a pastor there. Gladys is his wife. I've never met either one of them, but we communicate regularly. And I may never see them this side of heaven, but I can assure you I feel more of an affinity with them than I do with my own family here who doesn't know Jesus. You see, Frank and Gladys are Christians, Indian Christians. 
They're part of God's believing family along with me. And there's a lot of things that we share in common as believers that are more powerful and more real than those who are outside of Christ could ever understand. There's a hope that we share that's ours because we are part of God's believing family. And this is the hope that Peter was writing about to these persecuted Christians spread across northern Turkey in the first century. We're coming to the end of Peter's letter on how to live a living hope in a hopeless world. And over the last nine months, Peter's been teaching us about the hope of our calling as God's elect, about the hope of the resurrection, the hope that comes from proven faith, the hope of a holy life. He's taught us about the hope of our redemption, of God's word, of growing up in our salvation, the hope of Christ as our living stone, living like Jesus, having a godly marriage, and living a truly blessed life. He's taught us about the hope of living with God, and he's taught us about the hope of living for God, and the hope of Christian suffering, having godly leaders, and living in Christ-like humility. All of this written to a group of believers just like you and me who had struggles and heartbreaks and disappointments and even persecution. And Peter writes to remind them that in Jesus we have a living hope. And part of that living hope is knowing that we belong to a family of believers. And Peter reminds them that there is living hope that comes from sharing together as part of God's believing family. What is that family hope that we share? Peter tells them, we share the hope of the same present struggle and the same future glory. Our believing family shares the hope of the same present struggle. Here's how Peter put it in verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. I was reading a piece by Alwyn Belnave, who is, I believe, a leader in Canada, who a few, you, few years ago was telling about a story of a friend of his who served as a police officer in some of the more remote northern provinces of Canada. One day, a rabid wolf, he said, wandered into the aboriginal settlement. My friend eventually shot it, but not before it had attacked a young man and his grandmother in their home, making kindling out of a chair that the young man used to protect himself from his attacker. There were about 150 sled dogs in the village, more than a match for one sick wolf, yet the intruder was left alone to do her work. My friend explained that in order to prevent the dogs from fighting and wounding each other, they had each been tied to wooden stakes spaced far enough apart to prevent them from reaching any neighboring dog. Because of this, the wolf walked freely among the dogs, killing some and badly wounding others one at a time. In isolation, they were no match for their foe, and they suffered terribly for it. Aulin Belnave went on to say, what a picture of the need for every Christian to belong to a body of believers. Alone and isolated, Christians present themselves as much easier to pray, be preyed upon for the schemes of the enemy of our souls. 
As part of God's family, we share a common struggle. And we have a common enemy. And we're to draw strength from the fact that we share this together as God's family. Paul told the Ephesian Christians, the battle we're in is real. And it should not be underestimated. In fact, Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, there is a war going on in the heavens, a real war between the forces of God and the forces of evil. And we feel that effect on earth. And no person is immune from the impact of this war, especially those who are part of God's family. We all go through the effects of this battle. And Peter said, we face a common enemy and a common struggle. Our common enemy is the devil. Our common struggle is suffering. That's why he said in verse eight, be alert and of sober mind, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Satan is in the midst of God's church amongst his believing family, amongst all those who live for God. We're all undergoing the same kind of sufferings worldwide. There are no exceptions. And Peter said we ought to take hope in that fact because the common struggle we have is the direct result of being a part of God's believing family. In fact, the reason we have so many of our struggles is because we are in that family and it's a confirmation that we really belong. Otherwise, there'd be no reason for the struggle. Satan wouldn't have to attack us. He wouldn't have to mess with us. He'd already have us. But because we belong to God, now he comes to attack to try to discourage us and to get us not to believe, to make us ineffective in living this hope in the world. The fact that we struggle is a sign that we belong. That's why Peter said in verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Your enemy, the devil. A lot of growing Christians, a number of growing Christians do not even believe Satan is real. In fact, in a recent poll by Lifeway Research, 40% of millennials, young people born between the early 80s and 2000, say Satan is not real. He's just a symbol of evil. You see, this is why so many Christians fail to stand strong in the face of these attacks because they don't even think the enemy is real. Peter knew him to be very real. In fact, he said he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The word devil is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Satan, which means slanderer or accuser. In fact, it literally means an accuser as in a lawsuit. Satan is always accusing believers as being guilty of sin before a holy God. Probably sounds something like this. God, look at Larry today. Look at that thought he's thinking. Look what went through his mind. Look at his attitude. Look at his pride. Look at his selfishness today. You call him one of yours with sin like that in his life? 
Satan's always accusing us before the Father of being guilty of sin. How does God justify having any of us as his kids? And unfortunately, I probably give him more ammunition than he needs. He's prowling around looking for people to devour. Satan is a real fallen angel created by God to be his highest angel in rank and beauty. His given name by God was Lucifer. There's only three angels mentioned in the Bible by name that I know of. Lucifer, Gabriel, and Michael. And in his pride, Lucifer desired to be as God, to be worshipped as God. So he led a rebellion against God in the heavenly realms. And he lost. And he and a third of the angelic host who followed him were cast to earth as Satan and the demonic forces. This is real. It's not a story. This is what happened. Do you remember Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 18, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. God's people are engaged in a cosmic spiritual battle that's real. That's why Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul and Peter would be the first to tell these persecuted Christians, your persecutors are not the enemy. They are victims and captive of the enemy. Your enemy is the evil one. Satan has great power and great influence. Jesus called him the prince of this world, this world system that's anti-God. He called him ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's powerful, but he's not all-powerful. He's intelligent, but he doesn't have all wisdom. He is a finite being limited to one place at a time, but he has a vast network of demonic forces. God controls all that he can do. He allows only certain things, and someday he will be completely destroyed. But right now, the devil and his vast demonic network prowl around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, to swallow, to drown, to consume, to distract, to pull away, to overcome, to overpower. What weapons does he seek to devour us with? There are many. I put eight of them on the screen behind me. Eight D's of the devouring devil. What does he use? He uses doubt and things like division, getting us separated. Distortion, taking truth and twisting it just enough so it's no longer truth. Deception, which is outright lies. Discrediting, trying to discredit God, discredit his word, discredit the body of believers or even your faith. Discouragement, which comes in so many different forms. Defeating people, getting to the point that they give up and eventually with the hope of actually destroying them. So their testimony no longer can be spoken for Christ. And Satan loves it when people don't think he's real. They're easier to defeat. So many Christians fall prey to him because they live like sled dogs tethered to a pole. We allow ourselves to be separate, to be isolated. Sometimes we don't stand together. 
Sometimes it's, I'm not going to fellowship with those Pentecostals. I'm not going to fellowship with those Baptists. I'm not going to fellowship with those people over there or over there or over there. And it's not just that. It's within their own church. People don't often come together the way that they should. There's so many things we let divide us that don't really matter. And Satan's like a rabid wolf or a roaring lion devouring us with his lies. Our response, Peter said, is not to panic or to be afraid or withdraw or to run, but he said, be alert, sober-minded, and resist him. Be alert and of sober mind, he said. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Be alert, be vigilant, be awake, be aware is what he's saying. Get informed of the spiritual realities that are affecting you. Don't live in oblivion to that. You're a sitting duck. Learn what's really going on in your current struggles. Be of sober mind, literally free of intoxicants. Don't let anyone or anything distort your ability to think clearly and to respond rightly to the things that are going on around you. Resist him, withstand him, push back, standing firm in the faith. And that phrase, standing firm in the faith, doesn't mean just standing firm in the Christian faith. Having faith in somebody else's set of beliefs, no matter how true they are, is not going to be enough for you. And it's not standing firm in our own faith, in our faithfulness. I can't trust myself to stay faithful for God long enough to trust in anything. What Peter's talking about is having the kind of resilient, strong, steadfast, firm, solid trust in God and his word that allows you to say, whatever happens to me, I know who God is and I know his word is true. I stand with him and on his word. That's what Peter's talking about, that it will not move you. It's putting the whole armor of God on so you can take your stand. Remember how Paul expanded that teaching in Ephesians 6? Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Are you? Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel, the good news of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Put on all the armor, he said. Truth, righteousness, Rooted in the gospel, faith like a shield, assurance of salvation, 
and the Word of God, and then he said, pray. Powerful spiritual prayers for yourself and all the Lord's people, he said. Most Christians try to fight this spiritual war in their boxer shorts. They're not out there in in their armor. Do you wear that armor every day? Do you consciously put it on? Do you know you're saved with the helmet of salvation? Do you buckle your waist around with the belt of truth that holds everything together? Do you live a righteous life in Christ that is like a breastplate of righteousness? Do you have faith that's a shield that can distinguish or extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one? Are your feet firmly rooted in readiness in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? Do you pray? I mean, really pray? The truth is many Christians spend more time fighting each other than they do praying for each other. And I'm not saying that to be critical. And because of that, we isolate. And so we don't worship together. People, I'm all for live streaming, and I'm grateful for those right now who are live streaming with us. Some of you are shut-ins. Some of you just couldn't make it today. Some of you are missionaries. Some of you are in persecuted countries where what you're hearing right now is illegal for you to say. We're grateful for live streaming. But you need to understand, I say this all the time, even if you're a shut-in, even if you find yourself in a persecuting country, you have got to have fellowship with other believers. This is no replacement for that. And so you've got to be in a small group with somebody. You've got to have a praying partner somewhere. You've got to have somebody who will stand with you and pray with you and come alongside with you and encourage you. And we need to do it together. We cannot forsake the assembling of ourselves. We need to pray together, work together, serve together, be in small groups together, do whatever it takes to stand together worldwide, holding hands, holding up our faith to stand against our common enemy and our common struggle. You see, that's why the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 10, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured the great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. You'll be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. People, we are a family of believers who share a common mission. And because of our commitment to that common mission, we will have a common enemy and a common struggle. This is why Peter told the persecuted Christians, don't be surprised or discouraged when the trials come. It happens to everyone who lives for Jesus. It's a confirmation that you belong to his believing family. 
Remember 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will, be the, the, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. People, it's the same thing Peter was saying here in verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And when you experience this stuff, don't be surprised, he said. Let it encourage you with the hope of knowing that the suffering is evidence and confirmation you are part of God's believing family. And not just sharing the same present struggle, but he said our believing shares the hope of the same future glory. I love this part. Verse 10, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. I like to watch football, especially when my favorite teams play. But many times I don't get to watch the games because they're on a Sunday or they're on a weeknight when I have other meetings and things to do. And it's no hardship because when my favorite team is playing, I just record it. <laughs> now, a lot of people know who my favorite teams are, so a lot of times they'll come up before I leave church and go, man, bummer about the game. I'm thinking, really? You had to say that? Because now I know what? They lost. Or people come up and they say, whoa, man, congratulations. Really? Now I know what? I know they won. Now, I don't know about you, but if I've recorded a game and I know my favorite team lost, I'd go home and erase it. I ain't watching it. I'm not watching it. But if I know they won, <laughs> it's different. I can't wait to get home. I can watch the whole game in an hour with that fast, forth, fa fast forward button. You just whip over the commercials and the play. It's amazing. You see the whole game in an hour. I'm telling you, when I know my team is one, I watch the game totally different. I don't care if they have interceptions. I don't care if they have fumbles. I don't care if they miss field goals or can't score in the red zone. I don't care if they're 40 points behind and it's the three minutes left in the fourth quarter. I don't care how bad it looks because what? I know how it turns out. They're going to win. In fact, I'm sitting there watching this getting all worked up, and I'm thinking, hey, wait a minute. This game is over. They've already won. Peter's writing to these people telling them, that's the way you need to live your Christian life. 
that no matter how bad it looks, how much the enemy looks like it's winning, no matter how far behind you seem, you can be down 40 in the fourth quarter, but guess what? Stand firm, be encouraged, have hope, you're going to win. In fact, the good news is you already won. It's over. It's over. You and I are just playing out now to the inevitable victory. What a way to live. Peter said, you know how it all turns out. We win. We share in his eternal glory. In fact, we've already won it. Verse 10, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. People, don't miss the word and in verse 10. It's more than just a filler. It is a powerful word of contrast to what Peter is saying. It isn't either or, it's both and. The devil is seeking to devour you and God's grace is there helping you. The devil is there fighting and bringing you this struggle and God is using that struggle to produce this glory he called you to. So this is happening over here and God is doing this. This looks like a downer over here and God is bringing glory from it. It's a contrast. It's both. You're going through this and God is working in it. It's not but or if, it's and. This is our living hope. Not just reiterated here by Peter, but it's been the hope of people throughout the centuries. Do you remember Asaph, David's choir director? The guy wrote some marvelous songs for the worship life of Israel. I don't know exactly what brought about this response in Psalm 73, but he was going through the ringer. In fact, it had reduced him down to the point it sounds like he's almost losing his faith. Psalm 73, verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. See that? I lost perspective. I was in these trials and I forgot what it's all about. Verse 23, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. See that? He got it back. I've already won. Remember what Jesus prayed the night he was at the Last Supper? Before he went to the cross, John 17, verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Jesus is interceding to the Father that you and I will experience the glory that he alone possesses. The Apostle Paul said, if you are God's child, you will share in Christ's sufferings for a little while. And then you will also share in his glory. You remember? Romans 8, verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. You have all the rights of the firstborn Son of God. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. It's Aramaic for Daddy. It's the idea of endearment. This is what God becomes to you when you know who he is. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. People, I don't know all the things you're going through right now. I know around the world in various places people are going through horrendous persecution. But there's all kinds of trials. Loss of loved ones. Handling a crippling disease. Financial setbacks, relational strife, job loss, and a host of other disappointments and heartaches that we carry. I'm willing to bet there's not anybody in this room that couldn't identify something right now that is a burden. That's a concern. That's part of a struggle. Paul said, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Whatever you're going through now, you be faithful to Jesus in that, and it will produce a glory that far outweighs it all. The struggles are producing this, and God is producing this. This is why Paul told the Roman Christians, knowing this puts a hope and a purpose in our suffering. In fact, it puts a living hope and a purpose in everything that happens. Romans 8, verse 28, you remember? We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's done. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You see, Peter reminded these persecuted believers as part of God's family, you'll suffer for a little while. And then by God's grace, he will do this. He will restore you, literally make you complete you will be restored to become the person God always intended you to be. You will be restored to the perfection that God intended for humanity when he created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in all that perfection. How about that to look forward to? He will make you strong, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually strong so you can see through this to God's glorious end. He will make you firm, resolute, steadfast, immovable you will be able to stand with God in the midst of your trials he will make you steadfast meaning settled on a firm foundation your life will be rooted in Christ and his word the apostle Paul in the same way told the Corinthian believers that when you know this and you believe this it gives you a hope and a perspective that no matter what you are suffering it's producing glory do you remember in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13? It's written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, remember what our kids were singing this morning? I believe. It was thrilling me to hear them singing that. How different my life could have been if I'd have, if I'd have known that at their age. 
Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe. We also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. You're not getting weaker, you're getting stronger. You're not getting near the end, you're coming closer to the beginning. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. The suffering and the trials and the things we endure now for Christ are temporary, but the glory it produces is forever. No wonder Peter wrote as he did in this letter of hope so much about sharing together in the future glory. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance kept in heaven for you. Verse 6, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 1 Peter 5, 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Chapter 5, verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. We share in a present suffering and a future glory. And that's the living hope we share as a family of believers. I shared once before, I think, that um, I've only encountered a mountain lion in the wild one time. I hear it's a pretty rare occurrence. My son and son-in-law and I were uh, up on a mountainside in Montana in some heavily forested brush-like area going down an old logging trail when all of a sudden three mountain lions jumped out of the brush right in front of us. I have to tell you, they're one of the most beautiful animals I've ever seen in the wild. And they send a chill down your spine when they're a few feet away from you that is hard to describe. Um, these animals are a lot bigger in person than they are in the zoo. Uh, and they get bigger every time I tell the story. 
They turned, went down the road a few feet, and went into the brush, thick brush. We couldn't see them, but we knew they could see us. And one thing you never want to do on a mountain lion is turn your back. You are dead meat. I was reading a piece by Craig Childs, who's a, an author and a naturalist who studies mountain lions all over the country. He told about a time in Arizona. He came upon a mountain lion drinking at a small pool. As he quietly approached, the mountain lion just quietly stepped off and walked into the brush, and Craig Childs assumed he was gone. He bent down to look at the tracks, take some measurements, and do some other parts of his research when he noticed two eyes staring at him from the brush, and slowly the mountain lion came out and began to approach him. And as he approached, Craig, said, Craig Childs said, I stood up, I took the knife at my side, and I faced squarely the mountain lion who was continuing to come. And he said, I locked my eyes on his eyes, and I never took them off. And he began to pace back and forth around me like this, which is what they do with prey in order to get them to run. Because once the prey runs, they attack from behind. You never see them coming. They're almost silent. And they knock you to the ground, and they bury their teeth in the neck of their prey, and they snap the vertebrae, which renders them paralyzed, and you become an easy meal. The only way you defend yourself against a mountain lion in the wild, if you don't have a gun or a knife, is you have to stare them in the eyes and never turn and never run. Craig Child said, when you are facing a lion who is about to devour you, and that's his intent, it helps to know about the lion and how you stand firm to resist him. People, it's no different for you and me. We're facing a devouring lion every day. His name is Satan. He has chosen to come after God's people to try to derail them and destroy them so that the testimony for Christ in our lives will be rendered ineffective. And so, we face a common struggle as God's family. God allows it. He could set the boundaries, and he does. But all the struggle is not, not going away in this life. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world, Jesus said. The struggle is real. We're feeling the effect of the spiritual war in the heavenly places. We are to be alert, sober-minded, and resistant, standing firm in the faith. We keep our eyes on Jesus. But we also need to live with the hope that we have a future glory and that what we're going through now is producing a glory that goes beyond description. That's what's waiting for us. That's what God is up to. That's why Peter closes out this letter with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Silas helped Peter to write this letter. It may have been a scribe writing what Peter was dictating. She who is in Babylon, another name for Rome, a word that describes a godless community under the influence of the evil one. She is the church. The church that is in Rome, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. Here we are in Rome, and there you are in northern Turkey, Peter says, but we're in this together. We're God's believing family. And my son Mark sends his greetings. A powerful little detail. Mark was the understudy of Peter, 
who learned much of the gospel from Peter's life, besides his own eyewitness, and went on to write the second gospel of Mark. Here they are together in Rome, learning all these amazing things. Greet one another with a kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter begins with the call to peace, and he ends with the call to peace, and in between is the hope that this priest brings. The hope that comes from Jesus Christ, a living hope that is for God's family as they live in a hopeless world. I hope over these last nine months you've learned more about what real hope is, how to live it in Christ, and that no matter what happens, to always remember, we have already won. God, thank you for this. It's amazing just to think of it. To think that as we go through these struggles together, none of us are immune. We share this. We have to pray for each other, encourage each other, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Thank you, God, for what you're doing, not just in our church, but in your church worldwide. And thank you for the promise that we share not only the same present struggle, but the same future glory. Help us, God, in the midst of all that we face to have a living hope in a hopeless world. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.